0: Good morning, friends. Uh, This is another kind of an odd Sunday that I'm not preaching somewhere. So I decided that what I would do on these Sundays, I'm not at a particular church. I was going to kind of walk through the book of Daniel. Now, you might wonder, why study the book of Daniel? Well, let me give you three answers to that question. First of all, Daniel's situation parallels our own. For most of his life, Daniel lived as part of a believing minority in a majority pagan culture. From the time he was a teenager until he died around the age of 90, he served under a series of pagan kings. He never had the luxury of living in a country surrounded by people who believed as he did. And I think from his story we're going to draw many useful principles as we attempt to live for Jesus in a world filled with people who do not share our faith. Second, Daniel's prophecies may soon be fulfilled. This book is filled with dreams, visions, and prophecies about the end times. In the weeks to come, we're going to discover an amazing correspondence between the words of Daniel and life in the 21st century. And third, Daniel's God is our God too, and he's still on the throne. This may be the most important lesson of the book. God is in charge, simple and clear. He's in charge of nations, families, and individuals. He's in charge of the past, the present, and the future. He's in charge of good times, bad times, happiness, sorrow, joy, heartache, great victories, shocking defeats. He's in charge when a child is conceived and born. He's in charge when death knocks at your door. Studying this book ought to increase our confidence in the sovereignty of a God that makes no mistakes. I should also note that Daniel is one of the most popular Old Testament books. It's, often, it's been my favorite for a long time. I mean, the book's got it all. History, prophecy, politics, prayer, lions, statues, wild animals, a fiery furnace, dreams, visions, a king who thought he was a cow, incredible adventure, amazing escapes, angels, demons, detailed information about ancient history, and amazing prophecies about the end times. All of us will benefit from pondering the courage of Daniel and his three friends. I mean, how should we live in a world where believers are outnumbered and often overwhelmed? How should we respond to the rising tide of abortion, euthanasia, gay rights, the outright hatred of Christians, and the rising tide of persecution around the world. Where is God in the middle of a pagan culture? How do we proclaim Jesus in a world that doesn't even believe in the concept of truth? Daniel provides a positive model for how to live for God when no one else shares your faith. Now, in order to place this book firmly in our minds, here are a few background facts. Daniel lived approximately 400 years after David and 600 years before Jesus. This book covers the period approximately between 605 uh, to 530 B.C. In the beginning, Daniel's a teenager, about 15 years old. When the book closes, he's about 90. During his long life, God allowed him to serve under a succession of Babylonian and Persian rulers. From being an imported hostage, he becomes a trusted prime minister and counselor to some of the mighty rulers in world history. When the book opens, we find Daniel and his friends being forcibly taken from their homes in Jerusalem and deported to Babylon. It's there that these godly teens will undergo an enormous cultural transformation as they are trained to work for a pagan king. Now, As uh, we open the book, we're going to see three main players take the stage. First, there's Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. They represent the world system that's hostile to the people of God. And remember that Babylon in the Bible is always, with no exceptions, a symbol for evil and anti-God paganism. What starts in the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 comes to a climax in Revelation 17 and 18, as the entire world system is finally destroyed at the second coming of Christ. Second, there is Daniel and his three friends. They represent the believer in this world, striving to obey God during much spiritual opposition. And finally, there is the sovereign Lord who leaves his children in the world, and yet purposes to bring them safely to glory in the end. He never speaks a word, yet he is the one behind the scenes, orchestrating events to bring about his desired ends. Now, as I meditated on this first chapter, it seems to be an object lesson on how the world tries to seduce the church. What starts with a frontal assault becomes a subtle attempt at total assimilation. During the swirl of circumstances, we're going to focus eventually on four teenage boys who somehow found the courage to say no to temptation and yes to God. And to borrow a phrase from Charles Dickens, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Now let's start with the world seeking to destroy our heritage. Daniel 1 verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So this book begins with a total humiliating defeat. Verse 1 takes us back to 605 B.C. as the armies of Nebuchadnezzar surround the capital city of Israel. We know from history that eventually the king of Babylon had his way and overran the city's defenses. From that day onward, the temple, the city, all the things that mattered most, fell into the hands of the pagans. This led to the first deportation. A second one followed in 597 B.C. And in 586 B.C., the Babylonians attacked, this time destroying Solomon's temple, leaving the city in ruins, and the walls torn down. Daniel and his friends were taken to Babylon in the first wave. Now they're far from home, separated from all they have known. How will they worship God without a temple, without sacrifices, and while living among unbelievers? Thus does the world make a frontal assault on the people of God by separating us from our heritage and removing us from our own past. Well, next, let's take a look at the world as it seeks to deconstruct our faith. Verse 2 says, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, and put in the treasure house of his God. See, Nebuchadnezzar took the articles from the temple, that various worship objects made of gold and silver, dragged them back to Babylon, and he then placed them in the temple of the chief god of Babylon called Bel, or Marduk. Taking the worship objects was meant to show Israel's complete defeat. The message was clear, our God is greater than your God. By looting the temple, he thought he had defeated the God of Israel. But there's more to this than just pagan boasting. Many years earlier, during a period of spiritual decline, the Israelites had brought the symbols of other gods into their temple. Now God allows a pagan king to take his treasures into a pagan temple, such is God's righteous judgment. No principle in the Bible is so well established as this, what goes round comes around. The Jews had desecrated their own temple through consorting with idols. Now God allows the pagans to come and do the same. From a worldly point of view, it appeared that God was dead. I mean, how else do you explain the looting of the dwelling place of the one true God? And that raises a crucial question. Can we trust a God who is defeated? Can you trust a God when all the evidence suggests that he's dead? Will you be faithful even when your world falls apart? Is your God greater than your circumstances? But friends, all is not lost, though the looting of the temple made it seem that the Lord had been defeated, and the Babylonians had won the battle of the gods. Let's go on to verses 3 to 5. Here the world seeks to reconstruct our values. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility, Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them to a daily amount of food and wine at the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Now, it's helpful to know that starting with this verse, everything else in the book of Daniel takes place in Babylon. From this point on, Daniel is away from his homeland, and as far as we know, he never returned, not even for a visit. Now, I call those three verses I just read to you, Operation Assimilation. It begins with a selection process aimed at the cream of the crop of Jewish teenage boys. The king assigns them to Ashpenaz, his right-hand man. He then makes sure they get the best education Babylon can offer. For three years, they'll be immersed in Babylonian knowledge, culture, history, language, and religion. And at the end of that time, they would enter the king's service and be assured of high-level government positions. Now, this is very clever, and it's also very seductive. Mind control always begins with the young. Nebuchadnezzar called in his vice president of human resources, Ashpenaz, and gave him a three-step plan for re-educating these sharp young Jewish teenagers. Step one was a full scholarship to Babylon State University, the Ivy League of the Ancient World. Here they would learn science, math, Akkadian, astrology, commerce, and history. Step two was to offer them free food from the king's buffet. It was all you can eat all the time. And I, I think we sure understand this. Even back then, they knew the way to a young man's heart is often through his stomach. Step three involved changing their names. So, these Jewish teenagers were on a fast track in an MBA program. It's like being given a full scholarship at the Sloan School of Business at MIT or being singled out by their boss's right-hand man for special mentoring. I mean, talk about a sweet deal. This was it. It was the kind of break most guys would jump at. And to be fair, we have to say that Nebuchadnezzar didn't think of it as an evil thing. He probably thought he was doing these young men an incredible favor. And Ashpenaz was just doing his job as well. Well, let's go on to verses 6 and 7. You know, the world seeking to undermine our identity. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, although it isn't obvious from the English, all these names have special meanings. The Hebrew names all contain references to the God of Israel. The new Babylonian names mention the gods of Babylon. For example, Daniel, God is my judge, became Belteshazzar, Bel, that's their god, protect the king. Hananiah, the Lord is gracious, became Shadrach, commander of Aku, the Sumerian sun god. Mishael, means who is like the Lord, became Meshach, which means who is what Aku is. And Azariah, the Lord is my helper, became Abednego, servant of Nebo, another Babylonian god. The original Hebrew names tell us that these four teenagers must have been raised in godly homes by parents who raised their children to serve the true God. By giving them new names, Ashpenaz meant to obliterate their past. This was nothing less than systematic brainwashing. Nebuchadnezzar did not want good Jews working for him. He wanted good Babylonians who happened to have a Jewish background. And note that he didn't overtly force them to change their religion. The entire process just made it easy to forget it. They were being weaned away from their past little by little. And soon, they might actually forget it altogether. Clearly, the goal was for these young men to think and act and speak like pagans around them. It might have worked, but for one all-important fact, you can change the outside, but you can't change the heart. This is hope for all Christian parents who worry, and rightly so, about the negative influence of the world all around us. In the end, our job is to plant the seed of God's truth and then trust God to bring in the harvest. Romans 12:2. do not be conformed to the world. Now, I love the way the Phillips translation renders it. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. The world will squeeze us. We can't avoid that. But we don't have to give in. So here, then, is the Babylonian plan to transform these young men. A new home, isolation. New knowledge, indoctrination. A new diet, compromise. New names, confusion. It's a good plan because it evidently worked with some of the Jewish teenagers, but there were at least four, at least, who stood against the tide. But the world will not prevail against the church. That's my next thought. As we come to the end of our text, things appear hopeless. Here you have four teenagers ready to take on the mightiest man in the world. It seems like they don't have a chance, but we know that they survived with their faith intact or there wouldn't be a book of Daniel in the Bible. The question is, how did they do it? Well, they understood that four plus God equals a majority. When you factor God into the equation, suddenly Nebuchadnezzar doesn't look so big. Now, I intentionally passed over a key phrase in verse 2 that we need to think about at this point. It's the little phrase, the Lord delivered. What happened to Jerusalem was no accident. I'm sure the headline in the next issue of the Babylon uh, Sun-Times would read, Nebuchadnezzar takes Jerusalem. But it's wrong. He didn't take Jerusalem. God gave it to him, and if God had not given it to him, he would never have taken it at all. Now I ran across a wonderful statement that seems to fit our text in the strange days in which we live. It's this, Christians should be the calmest people on earth. What a thought. We have no right to run around wringing our hands, not when our God is on the throne working out his purposes on the earth. See, the book of Daniel opens with what appears to be a clear triumph of evil over good, yet God allowed it to happen for his own higher purposes. I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar didn't know that, and I'm sure the Jews had trouble believing it, but it was true nonetheless. As I pondered this text in this larger setting, I asked myself, what set apart these four teenagers from others? How did they find the strength to survive in a pagan land? Well, the answer can be found in the first verse of the next section, which tells us that Daniel purposed in his heart not to eat at the king's table. See, it all comes down to the heart. Nebuchadnezzar could control the environment, but he couldn't touch their hearts. And what an insight this is. Their bodies were in Babylon, but their hearts were in Jerusalem. They never forgot, not even for one moment, who they were and where they came from. Therefore, it didn't matter where they happened to be or even what their names they happened to be called. The faith of their childhood was tattooed on their hearts, and the mightiest man in the world was helpless to do anything about it. How will we survive in the continual onslaught of the world in our day? Well, it's the same way they did, by putting our hearts in the right place. For us, that means that even though our bodies are on earth, our hearts must be continually in heaven. And if our hearts are in heaven, then it doesn't matter where we happen to be on earth because the world can't touch us. This passage teaches us a great deal about a few subjects that I will not develop, but I just want you to think about them. That's the power of a good memory, the importance of godly heritage, the value of early training, and the call to godly courage. See, God used the attempted seduction of Daniel and his friends to prepare them for greater work to come. Here's yet another example of God's sovereignty at work. What the Babylonians meant for evil, they didn't see it that way, but it was, God meant for good. He put these four young men in a most vulnerable spot because he knew their hearts could stand the test. He even allowed them to be trained in a pagan school so that they might eventually become leaders in the pagan government. Now, I know it's easy to be overwhelmed in these days when the world presses us in on all sides. Yet we have the words of Jesus in John 17:15. My prayer is that not one of you take them out of this world, but that you protect them from the evil one. God has willed that his children should, be, should live in the world and yet be preserved from destruction by the world. He puts us in dangerous places like Babylon and then displays his power on our behalf. God is the one who gave Israel over to Babylon. He uses the world to knock out all our props so that we will turn back to him. What an important lesson this is to all of us. Israel was defeated, but God was not defeated. God wills that his children survive and thrive in the most difficult circumstances. This is part of what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The phrase gates of hell refers to the realm of the dead. Many times when our loved ones die, we feel as if the world itself has come to an end and we wonder, secretly and sometimes out loud, if God has not made some terrible mistake. Or we even wonder if there's any God at all. In one of his great hymns, Isaac Watts reminds us that, quote, Time like an ever-rolling stream bears all its sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. End of quote. Death reigns like a towering monarch over the earth and stalks our trail. We are told that the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. But that day has not yet come. Until that day, we live in hope and bury our loved ones in the confidence that death will not have the last word. We know this because on Easter Sunday morning, Jesus came out of the tomb, holding the keys of death and Hades in his hand. That's Revelation 1.18. In the end, death loses and the people of God win. We aren't there yet. Until Jesus comes back, life will always be a losing game. We keep on filling the cemeteries because our loved ones keep on dying. But it will not always be so. Better days are coming. And we'll hear about that in the weeks to come. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, feel the passion.